Hey, everyone, and welcome to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather, and I'm super excited to finally be doing this with all of you. I know some of you have been waiting months, so let's get to it. The first case we're going to be covering is the Chris Watts case. Chris Watts is what they call a family annihilator, which, as it sounds, means that he annihilated his entire family. Except the dog. For some reason, family annihilators never kill the dog. Anyways, we all know what he did, but now it's time to dig into how he did it and the events leading up to and after it happened. I've gone through the entire 1900-page discovery, and I'm pretty sure you're going to be shocked at what you don't know about this case. Episode 1 is going to cover day one of the Watts family murder, the day that Chris's wife and children went missing, and the sequence of events that followed. I could bother you with small talk, but nobody cares, so let's dive in. Chris and Shanann had one of those insta-perfect lives where everything on Facebook and Instagram, anything on social media was picture-perfect. And Chris seemed to go along with it. She took videos, pictures, went live on Facebook, and she even had a business that she ran through social media through the company Thrive. And she did pretty good with it, too, because she was bringing in $65,000 to $70,000 a year and had over 200 people signed up under her. One of them was Chris. As if social media wasn't already a huge factor in their life, it's actually how Chris and Shanann met. On the advice of his cousin, Chris sent Shanann a friend request, and she denied it, but eventually everything fell into place, and she accepted his friend request, and they wind up going on a first date. And he looked super comfortable, and she was super unimpressed by his outfit, but not enough to not go on a second date. And by the third date, she wound up getting a super bad migraine and fell asleep in his lap for two and a half hours. And he just like rubbed her head and let her sleep there and didn't move an inch. And she says that's when she knew that Chris was the one. For all intents and purposes, they were the couple that on the outside looking in were perfect. They had the perfect marriage, the perfect kids, two adorable little girls. Bella 4 and Celeste 3, and Shanann was actually 15 weeks pregnant, and they had just found out that it was a boy and they were going to name him Nico, and that would officially complete their family. They had a huge, fancy house in Colorado, and they actually moved there from North Carolina just because they visited and fell in love with it. Shanann had this well-paying job with Thrive, and she was able to do it from home, and Chris had a job with an oil field company that had really awesome hours, so he was able to be home by three every afternoon. He had a ton of time to spend with his family, and it seemed to really work well for them. They had a close marriage. Chris was known to be a great dad. Everything really seemed perfect. But you never know anybody. On August 13th, everything changed. After some flight delays, Returning from a business trip that she had taken for the company Thrive that she works for, Shanann finally gets home and it is 1.48 a.m. The ring camera on the front door catches her taking her suitcase in. Her friend Nicole Atkinson had actually been on the trip with her and drove her to her house. So Shanann gets home. 
She kicks off her flip-flops to the left of the front door. She latches the child lock on the top of the door, sets her suitcase at the bottom of the stairs, and climbs into bed with Chris. Fast forward to 9 a.m. when Nicole, her friend who had dropped her off just seven hours earlier, hadn't heard from Shanann at all. But Nicole wasn't the only friend who hadn't heard from her. Her friend Cassie also hadn't heard from her, and neither had her mom. Remember that Shanann was a habitual oversharer. If she was awake, she was on her phone. But so far, there was nothing. No phone calls, no texts, no posts on social media. Absolutely nothing. Not so much as a like. So naturally, her family was freaking out. They tried calling her. Everything went to voicemail. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. People don't turn off their phones. Silent was invented a bajillion years ago. By a bajillion, I mean probably like 10. But silent mode matters, and it's what everyone uses. Nobody turns off their phone on purpose. So when a phone starts going to voicemail, it's time to freak out. Deciding not to risk anything, Nicole and her teenage son hop into the car and head over to Shanann's house. Shanann and Chris have one of those punch code entry systems, and all of Shanann's friends had the code. So Nicole just punched it in and opened the door, but it actually caught on something, which was the child latch. It was still hooked from the inside of the door. She looked around through the crack to see if she could see anyone, and all she sees is Shanann's flip-flops that she had worn the night before, home from the airport, still sitting next to the front door. Now, you can't lock those latches from the outside, so no one had left out of the front door, and her shoes were still there, and everybody has a favorite pair of shoes. I know that I have a favorite pair of shoes. I know what shoes my husband's going to wear out. I know what shoes my daughter's going to wear out. So it was peculiar. They all know that everybody uses the front door of this house. The kids are super light sleepers, and Shanann didn't like people using the garage because it would wake them up, yada, yada, yada. So naturally, Nicole is uncomfortable. So she sees the shoes there. She can't get the door open. So Nicole's son stands on top of her car and tries to see through those narrow windows at the top of the garage and actually sees Shanann's Lexus still parked in the garage. So that was the only car at her disposal. And the child seats were actually still in the garage too. So no one could have left this house. You know, they would need the child seats for the girls. You can't latch the child latch from the inside of the door. Something is amiss. And yeah, I said Lexus when I told you that Shanann did well with Thrive. I mean, she did really well. They even leased this car out for her, and it was their only vehicle other than Chris's work truck. And his work truck couldn't be used for anything other than going to and from work. Shanann and the girls were not allowed to be in it. So if her car was at home, she was at home. So Nicole being the kind of friend that everybody needs, her and her son hop back into the car and head to Shanann's OB's office because she knew that she had a 15-week appointment scheduled at 9 a.m. that morning, and surely if she was anywhere, she would be there. And I don't know who she talked to, but somebody violated the shit out of HIPAA and let her know that Shanann had actually missed that appointment. At this point, we have three people flipping out. Nicole was doing all the legwork, going to the house, to the OB, peeking through windows, Cassie's texting and calling Chris and letting him know what's going on, and Shanann's mom, who's calling Bella and Cece's school to make sure that they're okay. But no one can give her that peace of mind because 
Bella and Cece are not at school. They never showed up. Shanann was a super type A personality. She made her and her kids' beds every morning. The house was always spotless. The kids had their outfits picked out for the night before. And today was actually scheduled to be the girls' first day back at school after summer break. Now everybody is beyond concern. At 11.40 a.m., Nicole calls the police and asks for someone to come check on Shanann because she can't get a hold of her. Nicole tells police that she dropped her off at 1.48 in the morning and that she hadn't been feeling well. She was 15 weeks pregnant and has diabetes. Now, Shanann was known to others to be somewhat of a hypochondriac. She was said to have a few different medical conditions. Lupus is certainly something she had officially been diagnosed with in the past, but this is the first and the only time I ever saw diabetes mentioned. She told the police that Shanann hadn't been answering anyone's calls or texts and that she had missed her OB appointment over an hour and a half ago. She says that Shanann's car is still in the garage as well as the child seats and her shoes are still by the front door. The child latch is still locked so no one could have gone out that way and she's tried everything that she can think of to make sure that her friend's okay and that her daughter's okay and she's essentially gotten nowhere. Nicole calls Chris to tell him that he needs to come home and check on his wife Uh, He's the only one with garage door opener who can get into the house, so homeboy has got to be quick. The responding officer gets there, and like before, Nicole punches in the code, but again, the door stopped by the child latch at the top. Like they do, the police officer announces loudly that he's police, but he doesn't hear anything, no rustling, no children, nothing. He hears no children. Shanann being sick and unconscious is definitely a concern, but not hearing children talking, crying, yelling, rustling around, throwing cereal at one another, that piques his interest, and it's something that makes him think that something might seriously be wrong. The officer climbs through bushes, over fences, knocks on every window and door that he can find, even the half windows at the garden level of the house that led to the basement. He peered in, he yelled, and he still heard absolutely nothing. The officer gives Chris a call and asks for the garage code, and Chris tells him that the code actually doesn't work, but that he's on his way and he'll be there in five minutes. Two o'clock rolls around and Chris finally gets to the house, a whole five hours after Nicole started freaking out. He pushes the door opener that he's got attached to the top of his truck and gets out, goes inside the garage, into the house, and shuts the door behind him. A minute or two passes. And he meets Nicole, her son, and the officer at the front door and opens it for them. And the officer asks Chris if he minds coming in. I guess he is just covering his bases, but obviously Chris is like, yeah, sure, whatever, come in. That's fine. Chris said that he had just swept the house, running upstairs, checking every room for any sign of anyone, the girls, Shanann, but nothing. And Chris isn't really freaking out. He's not panicking at all. He's just kind of relaying the information to the officer and Nicole. But now Nicole's panicking. While everyone's walking around the house looking for anything that might stand out, Chris goes upstairs and announced that he found Shanann's cell phone. According to the police report, he found it powered off between two couch cushions and a couch that they have in their upstairs loft. That's a super specific place to look for a phone. Anyways. This is when Nicole loses her shit, like officially loses her shit. And she's actually on the phone with Shanann's mom when Chris finds the phone. And when she tells Shanann's mom, it is one of the most heartbreaking and like earth rumbling messages I've ever heard relayed. It was like the confirmation they needed that something bad had happened. Shanann's phone was her entire life. She used it from sunup to sundown. She was constantly calling and texting her friends. 
taking videos, going live on Facebook, running your Thrive business. Shanann isn't the kind of person who would go anywhere without a phone, let alone turn it off, so something was officially wrong here. Chris turns the phone on, but there's a code, and he's the worst husband ever and doesn't know it. But like I said, Nicole is the kind of friend that everyone needs, and she knows the code. It was their baby's due date. Okay. When they finally get into the phone, there is a huge flood of messages and missed calls that start coming through of people who have been trying to reach her for one reason or another. It's here that Chris walks back into and then out of the bedroom, holding Shanann's wedding ring as if to say, look what I found, she must have left me. Nicole and her son and the officer start suggesting where Shanann might be that may explain her absence. Could a friend have come and picked her up? Well, the child sees we're still in the garage, so probably not. Could she be taking a walk or a hike? Yeah, probably not. Could she be down the road at the neighborhood pool? There's a reasonable explanation. So naturally, Chris runs out the door without any shoes on and goes to check and see if his family was at the pool. And the last sentence was a lie. He actually doesn't react at all. He does not care. He does not check the pool. He does not send anyone to check the pool. He does not pass go or collect $200. This is when Nicole starts making side eyes to the police officer as to kind of say, you're seeing this too, right? At this point, Chris has found both major pieces of evidence, the phone that was hidden in the ass crack of that couch and the wedding band that was on Shanann's bedside table. And now he's not concerned with checking out the possible places that his family might be. In fact, he doesn't even seem to be mentioning or concerned in the slightest about where his daughters might be. Police asked Chris to give them a rundown of his morning and any interaction that he had had with his wife. And Chris tells him that Shanann came home at around 2 a.m. and he was passed out. Apparently, he's also psychic, but whatever. He said he woke up at 5 a.m. to get ready for work, and that's when they started to discuss a marital separation. Uh, okay. That sounds like a fantastic idea. Wake your wife up after three hours of sleep and tell her you want a divorce. Anyways, he says that it was a civil conversation, that they weren't arguing, they were just emotional, and Chris says that the topic has been thrown around a few times in the last couple weeks. He says that Shanann was upset and that she said she'd be taking the kids to a friend's house for the day and that she just went back to bed. Chris said he then backed his truck into the garage. It was 5.27 a.m., which is a super specific time to remember. He said he loaded his tools and left for work, wife and children, still in the house. So remember that this was actually supposed to be the girl's first day of school back from summer break. And apparently it didn't seem odd to Chris that she just said fuck it to the first day of school. But whatever, I'm not a murderer. While police were at the house searching for any clues as to where the three girls might be, Shanann's mom called the police officer and told him that Chris had to have done something. She just knew it and that they absolutely 100% needed to check the GPS on his work truck. This kind of family intuition shit always blows my mind. You'll learn more about it in later episodes, but Shanann's mom knew something wasn't right immediately, and she never suspected anyone other than Chris. And despite maintaining a friendly back-and-forth relationship during the initial days of the search, she had a sixth sense. Some detectives get to the house a little bit later, and during their initial sweep of the house, they immediately spot Shanann's purse on the counter, 
which contains another phone, a wallet, debit and credit cards all still inside, and they also find the keys to her Lexus, the only vehicle at her disposal, mind you, in the center console of that car. The police head up to the master bedroom and they find the bed in disarray. The comforter, sheets, and pillows had all been removed, so literally everything. The fitted sheet was laying next to the comforter on the floor. The pillows were on the opposite side of the bed, also on the floor, but it was what was missing that made the hairs on everybody's neck stand up. No one could find the flat sheet. Chris explains the state of the bed by saying that Shanann usually jumps right into the bed after her flights and will wash them in the morning to quote-unquote get the airport off of them. So she must have taken them off when she got up for the day. Okay, well, ew, number one. And for someone who's so type A, it seems really odd that she put her own personal hygiene in the back seat. But whatever, say she did, why would she stop halfway through? I mean, she didn't get the airport off of them, she just got them off the bed. Which is frankly the man equivalent of helping. Chris's next-door neighbor, Nathaniel, gets a case of the nosies and comes over to check out what's up with all the cop cars, and I cannot blame him because I would 100% do the same thing. He's shocked to find out that Shanann and the girls are missing. He actually offers up that he has security cameras pointed towards the Watts' home. Oh, goody, said Chris, as he literally shit his pants. Just kidding, he didn't say that. Police and albeit Chris seem pretty excited and eager to view these tapes to see if they can see the girls coming or going at all. They go to Nathaniel's house and police have him pull up any of the times that the cameras signaled to motion that day. Chris is now pacing back and forth, taking audibly deep breaths with his hands and fingers literally interlocked on the back of his head. They see Nicole dropping Shanann off at 148. Cool. They see Chris's truck backing about an eighth of the way into the garage at 527, just like he said. He spends some time loading some stuff into the back and into the driver's side of the truck. But that's all you can really see because the driver's side of the truck is on the other side of the camera view. But it's not for nothing. Nathaniel and Nicole both take a minute to tell the officer that they've never seen Chris back his truck into the driveway ever. And not only that, but that he's acting super strange and this is not his normal behavior. Nathan offers up another little nugget, though, that he's actually heard Chris yelling loudly at Shanann on more than one occasion which is super interesting and news to the police since they've never been called to the house for any reason whatsoever. Everyone's currently, like, super throwing shade at Chris right now, and he's starting to feel the heat. Other officers and detectives are also starting to notice and comment about how unaffected Chris seems by everything going on. He's not panicking, he's not crying, but he's being really cooperative, so all anyone can really do right now is play nice, keep looking for the girls, and bide their time. Law enforcement continue looking around the Watts' property and find silver toolboxes, a pump with a big hose, a fire extinguisher, a gas can, and multiple other toolboxes in the bed of Chris's truck. One officer actually notices a shovel wedged between the bed of the truck and the silver toolbox in the bed. He noted that it looked like it had fresh dirt on it. And I'll take a minute to acknowledge that I think he's actually describing the truck box here, uh, which Chris did have on the back of his work truck. So it's as if someone tried to shove a shovel between the back of the actual truck and the bed of the truck, maybe to conceal it. Chris asks the officers if he should go out and look for his family, but the police tell him, look, dude, you're in Colorado. Her car's here. Where are you going to look? That was the one and only time that Chris ever asked to search for his missing wife and two daughters. Ever. Ever. 
Chris mentions offhand to one of the officers that he got a notification at 1242 about the garage door being left open, as if it had any significance to where the girls were going to be, even though they've reviewed all footage and they know that no one came or went through the garage after Chris left for work that day. But then Chris tells the same police officer again and actually tells him a third time after that. And the officer was so weirded out by this that he actually noted it in his report that it was really odd. It was almost like Chris felt like he had gotten a lucky ghost notification or something that may one day serve as his alibi, but we all know how this ends, and that's not the spoiler alert that you're looking for. At this point, it's 4.19 p.m. and more law enforcement shows up. Yes, it's literally only been two hours since Chris got home at this point. Chris decides that at this very moment, he needs to take a walk around the neighborhood to clear his head. What are you talking about? If this guy snuck into the garage, stole the Lexus, and drove off to find his missing family with his middle finger in the air, I'd get it. But you want to take a walk? You have stairs? Take a hike. Police want to do a full-blown search of the entire house, and cooperative as always, Chris signs away all of his rights and consents to everything. They tell Chris that he is welcome to stay inside the home during the search, but he says he'd rather stay on the porch. Chris either really likes the outdoors or is uncomfortable as fuck and does not know where to look or what to do with his hands. They find no sign of struggle at all, like literally whatsoever. The entire house was super organized, with the exception to their office, which they said had a lot of bags of medicine in it, all of which belonged to their daughters, Bella and Cece. Now, Bella and Cece have a Jack and Jill bathroom, and for those of you who don't know what that is, it's one of these bathrooms that connects two bedrooms. So they can go to the bathroom without actually leaving their room, but they share the bathroom. I've always found this super weird, but when they searched the girls' bathroom, there was no water in the toilet. And out of curiosity and to the bane of my husband's existence, I've tried to recreate this, and I've only been able to do it by clogging the toilet. And if we're being honest here, it was my daughter that wound up accidentally doing it, but that's the only time that I've ever been able to clear the entire toilet of water. And this could absolutely mean nothing, but I've also never read any reports of anyone checking the plumbing. You're welcome for that long slew of information that may never matter again. They go into Cece's bedroom... And like the master, the bed was not made, but the sheets and the blanket were still on it. This seems like junk information, but to her friends, it was everything that they needed. Shanann took her and the girls' medical conditions very seriously. She would never leave their medicine behind. And it was going to be their first day of school, and they knew that Shanann had picked out both of their outfits already, and they also knew that she made everyone's beds every single morning. So Shanann hadn't just gone to a friend's house. She was definitely missing and probably not on her own terms. The police suggest to Chris that he check bank accounts for any activity, but he chirps back that he can't because Shanann was in charge of the finances, and while he knows the passwords, he doesn't know the usernames. This is the same guy who didn't know his wife's phone password, but knows the bank passwords, but not the usernames. Okay. Chris finally puts on his big girl panties and says that he'll call USAA and Chase and see if they'll give him any information. They also ask him to check her wallet and see if all of her cards are there, and the king of excuses says that she has different cards than him, 
And he wouldn't know if one was missing because he honestly didn't know how many that she had. Chris actually knows nothing ever. Hours later, Chris finally takes it upon himself to call local hospitals and hotels to see if Shanann and the girls are there, and we all know they weren't. He got no information out of that. Next, the police ask him to see if any of the kids' favorite shoes are missing. I know that if my daughter's unicorn sequin slippers are gone, she is gone too. So Chris walks the police officer over to a closet full of shoes and casually jokes that he's always telling them to pick up their shoes. No one cares. Pay attention. Police start asking the heavy questions and ask Chris if he thinks Shanann might be having an affair. And his response is that it was totally possible. What? If this was true, why didn't you mention it earlier? If she might be at her new dude friend's house with your babies, don't you think you would have mentioned that in the beginning? When police ask if he was having an affair, he comes back with, No, I have not done that. What kind of backwoods bullshit I can't form a sentence crap is this? If you look up how to use the word yes in a sentence, this is probably what you're going to find. Fast forward, it's now 9.13 p.m. that night, and we're going on 12 hours since the saga started, and an officer calls Chris to see if he has heard anything, because Chris certainly wasn't calling anyone asking for updates. He said he hadn't heard anything, but gave the officer some phone numbers of some of Shanann's friends, Addie, Sam, Christina, Jeremy, and Cindy. Chris then shares with the officer that he is going to work the next morning, but will head home if his head isn't there. Um. I know you just made the biggest sideways what-the-fuck face ever in your entire life, and it is still there, isn't it? And this is where I'm going to leave you tonight. Next episode, we're going to go over the next two days of the search for Shanann and the girls, and there are some surprises that are going to come up and a little bit of word vomit from a stranger we haven't met yet. So, until then... Make sure you subscribe to the podcast if you like what you hear. And if you get true crime fever in between Mondays, I actually do mini cases on Thursdays on my Instagram at the Heather Ashley. Until then, we out. <laughs>